The scripture reading for this morning will be taken from two places. First of all, we will be reading from the book of Hosea. We'll be reading from the prophet Hosea, chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 1. After which we'll follow that up with reading from 1 Peter 2, the verses 7 to 12. Hosea 1, the verse 1 to 2, verse 1. And you'll be able to find that on page 1038 of your pew Bible. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Israel, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, The Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of a harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Deblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And then she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah, will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by bow nor by sword or battle by horses or horsemen. Now when she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I will not be your God. Yet, The number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There it shall be said to them, You are sons of the living God. Then the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. For great will be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brethren, my people, and to your sisters, mercy is shown. So far. We'll now read together from 1 Peter 2, the verses 7 to 12. Peter has just been speaking about Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, the one in whom all believers are placed in relation to and through whom God looks at his people and sees them as, as part of the temple, sees them as being living stones, sees them as purified in his sight. And so he says, Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you 
are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And here comes the passage we'll be focusing on, particularly this morning. You who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your works, your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So far the word of God. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the life of a prophet in Old Testament Israel was a hard one. It wasn't just hard because of the fact that people rejected you, people mocked you, and sometimes tried to kill you, but it was particularly hard on occasion because of what you were asked to do. As a prophet of the Lord, you are often asked to show by your life and by your actions the relationship between God and his people of Israel or the judgment that would be coming upon them. You would be asked, for example, to dig a tunnel through the wall of your house in order to show Israel that they would be so desperate to escape the judgment that was coming on them, that they would be digging a tunnel through the wall of their city in order to get away. Or else you would be uh, tied up, in another occasion, tied up and laid on your side for, for many days so that you couldn't move and you would, be able, you would be forced to cook your food over animal, dried animal feces in order to show the people how desperate their situation would be in the upcoming judgment that was coming, in the upcoming siege that would be laid against the city of Jerusalem. You were, as a prophet, expected to be a living picture that people could see and to relate to in order to bring God's message to them. But sometimes, in fact, often, the difficult thing that the prophet went to to try present God's message as vividly as possible for the people became a beautiful testimony of God's grace. And today we see this happening once again. This time around, it's the prophet Hosea who is going to be the representation of God's relationship with his people. And in order to be this living representation, God commands him here in verse 2 of Hosea chapter 1, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry. So he tells him to take a prostitute for his wife. You can just imagine the friends and family who are around him looking at Hosea, taking these steps, going in this direction, and saying, Hosea, you're, you're setting yourself up for a world of pain. The prostitute that he married 
would cheat on him. She would run away from him. And it seemed from her actions that although he rescued her from misery of a terrible way of life on more than one occasion, she still hated him. This was a very visible portrayal of how the nation of Israel treated God. They were the prostitute. They were the ones who had spiritually joined themselves to the idols of the nations around instead of the God with whom they had covenanted, which was what marriage was supposed to be an image of. They were unfaithful. Yet even through this very painful experience, we can see God's mercy. Through Hosea, God shows his love to a people even despite their unfaithfulness. By getting Hosea to do what he did, God was giving his people a picture of how very badly they had treated him. And yet, how amazing his love was despite all of that. Now, we could spend a whole sermon looking at this first chapter of Hosea and looking at every aspect of it and drawing out the beauty of God's relationship with his people. But what we want to focus on today, what we want to keep in mind today is how Peter uses this particular situation in his letter to the church. Peter draws on the words that are found here, the descriptions of the names of the children that were used to describe the people of God. Lo Ami, they were described as not my people. Lo Ruhama, no mercy, having no mercy on the people of God. And yet God had promised to change this situation, to draw in a people for himself. And this is what Peter points the eyes of his readers to. God is a God who reaches out to a people whom he has chosen, even if they keep turning away from him. He transforms them. Judgment hangs over them, but he draws them out from under that judgment and he showers them with his mercy and love, saying, you are sons of the living God. It's this passage in particular that Peter has in mind in our text today. It gives us a lens for the amazing grace, to see the amazing grace that God has poured out on his people. And through that, Peter uses it as a call to obedience. He says, this is the lens through which you obey. You look through the lens of God's mercy and you are called to obedience. As sinners, we were a people under judgment. But God has brought us as well who believe out from under that judgment. He is the one who has called us from darkness into light. And today we'll look at this under the following theme and points. Living as God's people. And we'll see, first of all, living in thankfulness. And secondly, living for our neighbor's good. Now, if you've been here for the last number of months, you'll remember how we looked back on the picture of pilgrimage that we found early on in the first epistle of Peter. 
And we looked ahead to that, to the inheritance that lies in store. The Apostle Peter uses each image to share something special about what the people of God have and who they are. And in the way that he lays it out here, he shows us that it's closely tied together. Both of these now are brought up once again in our passage. In 1 Peter 2, verse 11, he says specifically, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims. And this idea of an obedient life flows out of the life of one who is already a pilgrim. To be a pilgrim requires belief in Christ. If you do believe in Christ, then you are already a pilgrim traveling to that inheritance because you are the one who is already adopted. But to see how these two aspects are tied together, let's take a quick moment to see the fuller context of that idea of adoption and of having an inheritance. Peter begins early in his letter speaking about that pilgrimage, and he follows it up by saying that they are looking forward to an inheritance. They are heirs as they are pilgrims traveling through life. Now you may remember from a few weeks ago as we uh, covered 1 Peter 1 verse 4 how, how radically different being an heir back in that day was from being an heir today. Back in the day of Peter in the ancient Roman world if you were an heir it would be seen from a completely different perspective. Today, if you are an heir, you might not find out until the lawyer comes and knocks on your door and gives you a piece of paperwork to sign, and you find out that you have all of this money passed down to you from a long-lost uncle. But in the ancient world, it was different. The picture that Peter uses quite often, and that, sorry, that the apostles use quite often in the New Testament is one of us having been slaves to sin and having been adopted into the family of God. And this picture becomes, this picture is one that is a very beautiful picture because one who was a slave when they're adopted into the position of son, are brought together from an old life into one that is completely new and radically different. No longer are they seen as a slave. No longer do people look upon them with scorn and see them as something not really worth paying much attention to but they become a part of the family and they are granted new rights and new responsibilities within the home. Their being chosen as heirs means that they are brought into a whole new way of life. If you look at adoption today, however, you'll see that being brought 
into a whole new way of life doesn't always mean that things completely change around for the child who's brought from one point to another. Adoption agencies will warn about the trials that come with bringing an adopted child into your home. I personally know of somebody who has brought a child into their home. They had adopted a little girl from Africa. The parents looked at her, and they were the ones that first loved her. They laid their love upon her, and they chose her, and they brought her into their home. But just as the adoption agency had warned, pieces of her old life came with her. Anxiety, terrors, nightmares, temper tantrums, and destructive behavior. If you are a child who is brought into an adoptive home, there will be times when you, because of who you were, will fight and will sin. Any adoptive parent will tell you as much. They've wept with children who have had screaming fits, nightmares from the life that they're in, and outbursts of irrational and destructive rage because of the remains of their former lives that stayed with them. And we see this reality coming out in the life of the Christian as well. When we are brought from an old life into the new, we see these remnants coming with us. We see the fact that these old parts of our lives are brought with us, even though we have professed faith in Christ. For the adoptive child, their old life clings to them as you bring them into your new home. And sometimes the way that they react and the anger with which they respond is completely counter to everything that you believe in. And this is what Peter himself brings out in the second half of verse 11 of this chapter. He says, such things war against your soul. They damage the bonds of the family of Christ. They make war against your relationship with your Father in heaven. They are damaging. But does this change things for adoptive parents? For the ones I knew, it did not. The adoption price is already paid. The paperwork is signed. And this child, brought into their home, slowly has the remnants of their old life stripped away from them with an overwhelming outpouring of love. And so there's a thankful response that came out of the heart of this little girl. More and more, she left that old life behind. She was able to strip that away. It was stripped away through the love that was shown to her. And she began to seek to live in ways that were pleasing to her parents because she loved these new parents and she's so grateful of the fact that they chose her and they loved her and they brought her into their home. 
But what does this all have to do with being a pilgrim? The moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, we are adopted as children and heirs into the kingdom of God. And our adoption puts us on a road. Our first step as an adopted child is the first step as, uh, on a pilgrimage to a better land. To become adopted is to become a pilgrim. In 1 Peter 2 verse 11, he speaks of sojourners and pilgrims. These are both words describing a people whose home is not the land that they are traveling through. But they are headed to a more worshipful place. They are looking ahead to that inheritance that their adoption has bought for them. That was the pattern that Peter laid out here. He says, you are pilgrims, looking in in verse 1, you are pilgrims of chapter 1, and then verse 4, looking to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. Those two, although they each bring beautiful things on their own, they're tightly bound together. And our response is one as pilgrims who are moving through this world. With that inheritance in mind. We're not acting in this way because we need to earn our adoption. We need to become more of a pilgrim. But our actions that come out of what our actions come out of what we've been given. Our actions are a response of thankfulness and grateful love. Our gratitude is a river that runs deep. Fed by the springs of Christ's love, this river flows out and takes living water with it through a dry and thirsty land. New life springs up wherever it flows, and this world can't help but be touched by the pilgrims who pass through it. And this is why they are called to obedience, which brings us to our second point. living for the benefit of our neighbors. If we look earlier in chapter 2 here, we can see how Peter has us looking inwards. In chapter 1, he reminds us of the fact that we have this inheritance that lies in store for us, and so he looks at us personally. And then in chapter 2, he speaks of us within the context of being given life as living stones. And now he calls us to look outwards. And here comes the meat of our text. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God on the day of visitation. There are three things that Peter reminds us to consider as we look at how we live among our neighbors in this world. The first is to abstain from fleshly lusts. And the second is to have our conduct be honorable. And he drives that all home with reminding us once again why we do what we do. Peter reminds the people that the very 
reason that they are treated differently in this world is because they are pilgrims. And so he says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from your fleshly lusts. He says, you are different. Don't indulge what they are indulging in. This is all they have. It's been said for unbelievers that this world is the closest to heaven as they are ever going to experience. But for believers, this world is as close to hell as they are ever going to experience. And that's something to keep in mind. When we are traveling through this world and we look at the values of those who are around us, we have to keep in mind that this world is all they have. And so they are going to scramble after these things that satisfy them here. But it's not all that we have. As the Apostle Peter asks us, are we going to pretend to be blind to our future and value the same things as they do? We're pilgrims in this world for a reason. God has blessed us richly, adopting us, and then giving us a destination to look forward to and to move forward to. But the very fact that we are different also means that we ought to value different things from this world. And that is what fleshly lusts point to. It's not talking about anything particularly sexual in nature, but it's speaking about all of those things which the world looks to, the world sets their desire on. We, on the other hand, don't set our desire on those things which are fleshly because we are pilgrims. Is this how you're living? You young people in Catholic school and public school, university in the workforce, you'll be particularly exposed to this, although you who are in Christian schools are not immune to that. When you are in these situations, you adopt the interests of those who are around you. Why? It's quite possibly harmless, yes. It's not a bad thing necessarily, but are you doing it to fit in? And if so, why? Wives and husbands, you hear in the workforce and in the media how marriages ought to be, how you should or shouldn't be treated. Now, this, they may have things that are of some value mixed in with this, but have you measured what's being said against the Word of God? Are you maybe adopting some desires that the world says that you should require of your spouse, but God's Word does not say that? Are you maybe foregoing responsibilities that the world says you should forego, but God's world says you should not? The things that we treasure in this life and the things that we enjoy, the things that are precious to us, are we seeing them from the perspective of sons and daughters of the King of Heaven? Are we seeing them from the perspective of pilgrims? What is driving you to hold off from those fleshly lusts? Are you holding off from them out of thankfulness? 
This is the first thing that Peter asks us to consider. And then the second thing is, let your conduct be honorable. He calls us to have our conduct to be honorable, not because we're falling short in what we're doing right now. And not because we need to do more in order to win God's approval. But he says that that we ought to do this because we genuinely believe that we have something special. And we're thankful. Philippians 2 expands on the way that we can let our conduct be honorable by saying, do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life. And the idea behind these two passages is very similar. We are called to let our conducts shine in this world because we believe we have something special and we want to share it with the world and we want to draw them in. The truth is, however, that we won't win over everyone who we connect with. Not even the Apostle Paul, the most written about missionary in the New Testament was able to do that. Some will possibly see us as religious nuts. Sure. Again, not even the Apostle Paul was able to escape that. But we are called in our response to the world to never let them be able to say, I didn't know. You have something beautiful. You have and you are a light shining in the darkness. You are adopted children and you are pilgrims on the road to your inheritance. Let them see your thankfulness for that and let them never say, I didn't know. Rather, beloved, let us build relationships and live unapologetically as thankful Christians within them, making the most of every opportunity that arises with those who are around us. We don't need to make converting them specifically our goal. We can continue what many of you do already, making and building a relationship being that goal. Being a thankful Christian witness and aiming for the glory of God, leaving the rest in his hand. You can bring in other Christians. You don't have to go it alone. Introduce them to your Christian friends or take them along to events that you're going to anyways, where the love of Christ that you and I already enjoy is on vivid display. Make them a part of your life so that as the author and convert to Christ, Rosaria Butterfield, so beautifully puts it, in this way, neighbors become friends, friends become family, and family becomes the family of God. When we bring them into our lives, beloved, if we're living out the gospel, then whether or not they believe is besides the point. It's our hope that they do, and it's our prayer that they become part of the family of God with us, and we strive to that end, 
But whether they do or not, our mission is that we could live out our lives of thankfulness before them in such a way that they could glorify God on the day of visitation. That is to say, when Christ returns on the clouds of heaven, they will say, yes, Lord, your witness was true and clear. I looked at the people I saw here, and I saw that they were living out of thankfulness. And they called me to live in the same way. Beloved, let us be lights in this world. Let us not hoard this adoption that we've received and this light that we have. But let us open up our relationships to include those who need the exposure of a Christ living through us and through our community. Let our godliness be known to all. And let us strive to live godly lives so that we can be real with our neighbors without feeling hypocritical. That this life, full of genuineness and without hypocrisy, this thankful life, whether we're happy, sad, anxious or depressed, celebrating or mourning, might glorify God. And if he wills it, win our neighbors for Christ. Amen.